Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Welcome to a special edition of Southern Songs and Stories, where we normally showcase the music of the South and the artists who make it. In this episode, we pay respects to Jeff Eason, a dear friend who passed away recently. We remember him by sharing some of his work here when he was at WNCW, where I am program director. Now, back in 2007, I was the morning music host on WNCW, mixing the tunes from 6 to 10 a.m. weekdays. I came up with the idea to make a daily music talk segment of around five minutes each day with myself as host and guest panelists conversing about everything from record reviews to moments in history to more editorial content and think pieces. Now, if you're like me, you can talk about music for hours without really even trying. And that sort of spontaneous water cooler talk about artists, songs, and such was already a real boost to my workday. So I gave it a platform, called the show What It Is, and brought in fellow music heads Jeff Eason, who was then a newspaper editor at the Mountain Times in Boone, North Carolina, and Fred Mills, who was then the managing editor for Harp Magazine and who lived in Asheville. The three of us would dream up topics to cover and write notes on what we had in mind to say. We would meet every few weeks and record sessions in a studio at WNCW, which I would then edit for airplay, giving over the Friday edition of the show to listener feedback read live on the air. It was great fun, and what it is was pretty well received. Rock Steady by Aretha Franklin, with its refrain of what it is, was the theme song. I eventually brought in other panelists like Carol Rifkin, a writer, musician, and host of WNCW's old-time music program, This Old Porch. You'll hear her on one of the What It Is episodes I'm including here. There would be many more panelists over the years, but Jeff Eason and Fred Mills were the only voices other than mine for that first year or so, and they set the tone for those that followed them. Jeff Eason left us on June 2, 2018, dying from leukemia. I didn't know that he was going to pass, and the news came as a shock. He had been at Duke Hospital, getting chemo and the whole bit the previous winter and spring, and was released. I thought he was going to get better. The last thing I heard from him was a Facebook post talking about going to Merlefest. He went, but I didn't find him while I was there. It's easy to miss seeing your friends in the middle of 20,000 people or so, you know, and about a month later he was gone. To honor Jeff and to revisit some of those good times we had on the radio together, I'm presenting several of his What It Is episodes for you here, and we'll include some of the -the behind-the-scenes chatter that we had surrounding those episodes. You can find a lot of What It Is episodes online, 244 of them to be exact, which isn't all of them, but still a lot, at this address, southernsongsandstories.com slash whatitis. First up, an episode that aired 10 years ago on July 9th, 2008. 
we decided to whack the hornet's nest and take on some of music's sacred cows. tune with what it is on WNCW. I'm Joe Kendrick, joined by Jeff Eason and Fred Mills. And today we come into the studio bearing a large axe and a big block. And on this block, we've got a certain sort of musician. The sacred cow. The sacred cow. Yes, what it is, is pushing your buttons today, talking about (laughs) some honored musicians and bands that we would like to put on that chopping block. And I'll start the conversation with a reminiscence of high school. And I had my cutoff jeans that were all cool that I'd written on and everything. And that was at the time that In the Dark was released. And a certain Grateful Dead song was getting big FM airplay, and it drove me nuts. And so I'd written, I hate Grateful Dead on my jeans. (laughs) And I've seen The Dead, and I enjoyed it. You know, the Grateful Dead have only made, what was their entire career? They had only made like something like 100 songs, decades of touring and everything. Now, that's 100 more songs than I've written. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to be careful here because they were great. But I just can't take the all of the live noodling. It just always drove me nuts. Now, the Grateful Dead also did themselves a great favor and a favor to music in general by allowing taping. And started a whole culture out of that that really kept them long-lived. And a lot of people have really benefited from trading tapes. And and it really set the stage for a lot of bands later on to take the same idea and give something away and and gain much more in return. But I tell you, man, if I had to sit through (laughs) any of that twangy, noodly, just out-of-tune rambling, uh, you know, it... It was really a test. How about a half-hour drum solo, Joe? <laughs> yeah. And I saw the Grateful Dead once. I just saw them once. But I was impressed, really, with all of the covers that they did. And so it makes a lot of sense. You know, they only had a few studio albums, really, with uh, studio tracks and, and tons and tons of live material. Oh, somebody's going to call in and say, Joe, you need to have seen them a hundred times. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, your Uncle John's band or maybe even Cosmic Charlie and Ripple and a few tracks like that. But but overall, I say, man, they're just so overrated. When I was in college, uh, I had a good friend named Anne, and she was a big deadhead. And actually, I went to one of the shows with her. But uh, one summer, when we were on break from college, this older couple that we knew, their son was turning 13 years old. And so for his birthday present, they bought him and Anne all these tickets to Grateful Dead shows all up and down the East Coast and, and had their son just kind of travel with this, this strange deadhead woman. And it was sort of like this hippie bar mitzvah. It's like, <laughs> now you are a man, son. You must go follow the dead on the road. Oh, man. God. Uh, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with living in the past. <laughs> I, I do every day. Uh, but for my sacred cow to slay today, I'm just going to read this because this works better than trying to freestyle. Top ten reasons why John Lennon is overrated. Reason number ten. Martyrs don't really make good role models. Joan of Arc heard voices and was probably a schizophrenic. Kurt Cobain was a whiny heroin addict. Lennon was an ill-tempered alcoholic and ex-junkie. Number nine, they don't make good father figures either. Just ask Julian or Sean. Number eight, his frequently touted politics were actually self-serving. He craved the same attention he'd previously gotten as a 60s pop idol. So playing the role of counterculture 
icon fit him to a T. Number seven, he really didn't stand for anything. As one British writer puts it, his legacy is a warm, fuzzy pacifism, a hedonistic refusal to commit yourself to anything. He's the icon of escapism. Number six, his post-Beatles music was almost total crap. Evidence for the prosecution? 1970s John Lennon Plastic Ono Band so poorly produced it screams for an intervention by George Martin and Double Fantasy from 1980s so relentlessly M.O.R. that it just makes me cringe every time I hear that song just like starting over, come on the radio again. Number five. (laughs) Two words, Paul McCartney. Only when working with Paul did John really challenge himself to make great lasting art. One word, imagine. Second, only to I'd like to buy the world a Coke in terms of simplistic, cloying, Hallmark card platitudes. Number three, his art was crap too. Or have you never seen his kindergarten-level doodles and his so-called whimsical animal caricatures? Number two, he ushered in the era of celebrity stalkers. Okay, technically that would be Mark David Chapman that did that, but you know what I mean. And the number one reason John Lennon is overrated, dun 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 Jesus died for your sins, folks, not John. Get over it. Well, my sacred cow is sort of, um, let me preface this by saying I love the blues. I really do. And I love getting together with good musicians that know a little bit something about the blues. But what I absolutely hate is when I hear somebody talk about Robert Johnson and Robert Johnson's music like he single-handedly invented the blues. He came decades after W.C. Handy, decades after Scott Joplin. Uh, He had this sort of primitive Delta blues sound, and he only, in one recording session, recorded 29 songs. And to my ears... They may have all been the single same song because every single guitar riff is exactly the same (laughs) on all of them. And for some reason, after Eric Clapton re-recorded Crossroads and a few people did some covers of Robert Johnson's songs, his legacy kind of became this icon of blues to where the image of him selling his soul to the devil to become a great guitarist at the crossroads is supposedly this big spiritual event for, for blues aficionados. But I don't buy it. The guy... When they released the box set a few about a decade ago of all 29 songs, I bought it and listened to it, and it's almost unlistenable. Some of the songs are great in the hands of other musicians, but I wouldn't think of him as anything in the realm of blues the way some people do when they talk about Robert Johnson, and particularly when you compare him to somebody like Jimmy Rogers. You know, it was actually uh, Ralph Macchio who sold his soul to the devil, <laughs> and that was Steve Vai in the role of the devil. That's believable. We're slaying some sacred cows today on what it is here on WNCW. What do you think? I know you think about what we've been saying, so go ahead and email us what it is at WNCW.org, and we'll visit your comments come Friday. For Public Radio, I'm Joe Kendrick, joined by Jeff Eason and Fred Mills. What it is, Joe? A side note to my friends at the Osiris Podcast Network and for all my deadhead friends about tossing darts at the Grateful Dead. I've learned more about and have grown to appreciate them more in years since and was not trying to be inflammatory or rude. None of us set out with that in mind on the piece. Well, the phone and the email inbox lit up after that one, as you can imagine. People seem to either love the episode or hate it. There's not much in the way of middle ground. We had our hands full replying to people. Here's what Jeff wrote to Fred and me afterward. Guys. I think the nature of the subject sacred cows makes it inevitable that some people will have their toes stepped on a little. 
I didn't get a chance to hear it being aired this AM, but was there when it was recorded so I have a pretty good idea of what was said. The fact that one listener complained and stated that Robert Johnson is a, quote, flipping legend, end quote, kind of makes my point for me. Like Joe and Fred said, we discussed what we were going to say ahead of time and Fred did soften his top 10 list. As far as what it is goes, I'd say that 9 out of 10 segments are positive. Giving new albums glowing reviews, talking about good shows we have seen lately, praising underrated artists, etc. So we're obviously not doing this to trash people with our opinions. As far as sacred cows go, I don't think we would ever use the subject to trash a local artist who is overrated, although there are certainly some of those out there. If you look at our list, Grateful Dead, Robert Johnson, John Lennon, you can see that they are fairly immune from any criticism that we might level. The people who didn't like what we said obviously took it too personally, and that's really more their problem than ours. That said, I would never say anything on what it is that would make listeners think less of the station or tune it out. I love Todd Rundgren, but if I heard our listeners state his utter contempt for Todd on the radio, I would be a grown-up about it and understand that his opinion is a legitimate one. More later, Jeff Eason. And I got Now, here's one we did about some of the great art made for album covers, creative box set constructions, and how none of those can be replicated on CD packages, much less digital files. This originally aired in May 2008. tune with what it is on WNCW. I'm Joe Kendrick. Today, a fun subject. We're talking about album art. Yeah, you remember those things, those vinyl discs that were usually black and came in a, in a big cardboard sleeve. That's that old school stuff, vinyl, and some of the great album art associated with it and how that has, well, ebbed and flowed, but waned a little bit here and there, but has had a resurgent in spots in music unto this day. I was thinking about this the other day because my dad just bought a turntable that specializes in, in taking your vinyl tracks and, and uh, converting them into digital form and storing them as MP3s on your computer. So I was going through all of my old albums, and I was just, you know, it's just a sense of nostalgia. And the fact that you sit there and you hold them, and they're, what, about 12 inches by 12 inches or something like that, and you can really, really get into the texture and the art of them. And, and I miss that. And I know some people say that album art's not completely dead, but for me, it... it belongs to a certain it, the, the golden age of album art was the vinyl era and uh, I, I really miss it I, I miss what certain artists would do and how certain artists were associated with certain bands like Neon Park was associated with with Little, Little Feet, Feet yeah. and Cal Schenkel was uh, involved with Zappa for many years Hip, and Hypnosis and Pink Floyd, Floyd and yeah. Roger Dean and yep, yes, yes yeah. yep. you know there's that old cliche the great thing about albums is if you had a gatefold sleeve you could clean your weed on it <laughs> so there was also that utilitarian element of uh, album art 
a lot of this was in the 70s, I think, when, when bands were not only flexing their creative musical muscles, but they realized that they could do the same thing art-wise, and they wanted to reflect their creativity visually as well. And they would, they, as you mentioned, they would hire some of the great artists that would be associated indelibly with them. There were also some really interesting twists just on the way they were shaped and, and, and what they did. For example, everybody remembers Led Zeppelin three with the little pinwheel that, that turns around inside. Uh, Jethro Tull's Stand Up, you open the gate fold, and, and lo and behold, the four guys at Tull pop up. Family, a yeah. band that you and I have talked about, Jeff, Fearless, had the kind of uh, the layered pages that mm-hmm. flip open. Uh, and, and the band members' faces would kind of, as you flipped open to them, they would all kind of meld into one face. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Horse Lips, Irish band, they had this octagonal cover for Happy to Meet, Sorry to Part. Come think of it, the Rolling Stones actually did their uh, second greatest hits album as an octagonal shape. The Raspberries, moving forward a little bit, had their album Side 3 was die-cut in the shape of a tub of strawberries or raspberries. A lot of bands got into die-cut shapes. Uh, even in the punk era, uh, The Damned had an album called Strawberries. It had a scratch-and-sniff I remember cover. That. Uh, that's a whole other ball of wax. But I'll never forget this one compilation called the Glastonbury Fair Festival. It came out in, 90, in 72, and it included artists like Grateful Dead and Bowie, Pete Townsend, the Pink Fairies, Edgar Broughton Band, and the front cover, uh, the whole sleeve, after you you could take the albums out, it's like a triple album set, I believe, and you then you take the sleeve and it'd keep unfolding and folding until you had this gigantic poster. So it wasn't like a poster slipped into the sleeve. It, it literally, it folded out into a poster itself. A lot of crazy thinking going into all this, and nowadays you might even say, what were they thinking? It must have cost more to uh, to create the packaging than to press up the albums themselves, but it was a, a lot of fun while it was happening. Vinyl is making somewhat of a comeback, at least as a sort of a boutique phenomenon, anyhow, because turntablers are going back on sale in electronic stores and more people are releasing vinyl on top of whatever digital releases that they make. And it's nice because vinyl is such a totally different way of listening to music. It's like slow food. Or something, you sit there and you look at it, you, it's, it's hypnotizing, you want to watch it spin. You can hear things if you've got something up against the cabinet where your turntable is and you bump the cabinet, you can actually hear that come through the speakers and so forth. It's just so much of a different phenomenon. And the album itself being larger just invites that much more attention to the art. I think back to my early years in high school and such when I was infatuated with hair metal and just metal in general and, say, the Iron Maiden LPs and oh, things, just Eddie, what intricacy uh, yeah, and Luster. just the fascination with drawing all of their all of their graphics of the you know how they would make the, the letters of their name for Rat and for Ozzy and for all this stuff. Yeah, a lot of those heavy metal, especially death metal albums, have very intricate album art. You know, they don't just slap a photo of their dog on the cover. They they put a lot of work into it. I think you've definitely got to weigh in on Sgt. Pepper in this conversation. Well, the Beatles, I think, their album covers almost mirrored the progression of modern art. They became uh, more and more intricate, more and more Baroque, until it kind of exploded with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with all the iconic images and then uh, Magical Mystery Tour and then, boom, the White Album. That's almost like the modern art's minimalist statement right there. Or like the Germs O, another mm-hmm. simple album cover. You know, I'll tell you something interesting about the, the Beatles stuff. I, I'll never forget 
those uh, little inserts. Uh, I think they were like almost like cut out cut out paper dolls of the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper. The White Album came with four glossy photos of each mm-hmm. member and this giant poster that folded out. Well, a few years ago, they reissued a, something like a 30th anniversary edition of the White Album, and lo and behold, they had miniaturized versions of the, the photographs and the poster tucked inside this, this plastic sleeve. Uh, the Who, when the, the Who's Live at Leeds got reissued on CD the first time around, or maybe the second time around, they did this deluxe uh, 12-inch box packaging that included reproductions of all those inserts that were in the original Live at Leeds, you know, the poster and the, and the photo and the invoice and things like that. They did something similar with George Harrison's All Things Must Pass a few years ago on a, on a smaller scale, a, a miniaturized box to reproduce the original box that Harrison's album came in. I think inherently, though, CDs, the, the, it is the size that kind of limits them as being as much of an art form as uh, album covers. I mean, I would never imagine an artist, say, of the caliber of Andy Warhol devoting his time and energy to creating a CD cover the way he did for Velvet Underground. The, the banana and everything. Right. Well, now, think about it, though. Uh, everyone likes box sets. Everyone has seen a, a Rhino production. Uh, Rhino wins a Grammy every year for the, their elaborate box sets. They've they've recently did a heavy metal box. It's shaped like an amplifier and it's got a toggle switch on it. They did the Brit box, it's shaped to look like a, a British phone booth, and it's even got a little light that comes on. You, Pink Floyd's Pulse a few years ago, they had a little LED light that blinked on the side until the batteries <laughs> ran out, and you're left with a, a non-functional uh, LED light. Younger bands have gotten into the spirit. Both uh, REM and Radiohead, each time they put out an album, they always do a, a concurrent uh, limited edition that has very elaborate packaging, lots of inserts and stuff. And uh, Spiritualized, they, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're floating in space, came in a foil package. At the, the CD, you popped out like a tablet. And I'll never forget, there was an industrial label. I believe it was called Manifold. I forget some of the artists that were on it, but this was like in the mid or late 90s. They would package their CDs in uh, roof shingles, uh, thick sandpaper, wooden blocks. And, and i got to say, you don't want to lay your CD down on a sheet of sandpaper anytime soon. But it was a, another example of maybe them trying to recapture that uh, quote-unquote lost art of, of LP packaging. The photographs on albums also said a lot about the differences between the cultures of America and England and Europe because uh, they're – over the ocean there, uh, nudity was a little bit more allowed, and so there would always be these alternative covers to, say, the Blind Faith album, mm-hmm. which had sort of a, a, an 11-year-old girl who was topless, and Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. I've still got my copy of that. Um, and John Lennon's Two Virgins, mm-hmm. and the Roxy Music Country Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a, a nice history of people who are making small pressings and making their album art by hand and say each pressing would have different variations of the art because it's all being handmade and I love that phenomenon I was just at the Asheville record sound swap and I was going through a lot of the vinyl that was on sale there and one dealer had a whole trove of contemporary industrial and electronic bands and then those artists for some reason they gravitate towards extreme packaging just like they make extreme music and some of these as you say hand assembled Limited edition, you know, they might press up 200 copies, and each packaging is slightly different from the next. And don't forget colored vinyl, the joys <laughs> of colored vinyl. Some of my favorite discs have to be because that they are colored vinyl, and then more than just yellow and white and mm-hmm. colors 
but also images. Well, picture discs. Mm-hmm. Picture discs. I've got still proudly carrying my parallel lines by Blondie around with me. I still got the original edition of the Talking Heads album. I believe it was Speaking in Tongues that yeah. they put out with the, the strange see-through cover yep. and the strange yep. vinyl. What do you think? What are your memories of favorite LPs? Maybe a little bit dusty. Pull them back out. Email <laughs> us what it is at wncw.org. This is one of my favorite episodes with Jeff and Fred. By this time, we were an established presence on the air at WNCW and kept fresh episodes of What It Is on air most every week. It was a ton of work, but a lot of fun. Here's the bio Jeff sent us for posting on the station's website. Jeff Eason is the entertainment editor and movie reviewer for the Mountain Times in Boone, North Carolina. In previous incarnations, he has been a radio announcer, professional musician, bartender, welder, truck driver, and sous chef. His writing has seen the light of day in Smoky Mountain Journal, Appalachian Voices, and The Blowing Rocket, among other publications. During the summer, he is obsessed with growing odd varieties of tomatoes. He credits the various radio stations he grew up with shaping his musical tastes. Favorites include KPOI Honolulu, CJOM, and CKLW Windsor, WXYC Chapel Hill, and of course, WNCW Spindale. One more episode for our tribute to Jeff, the time that he and Carol Rifkin laid down a spontaneous debate about Tim O'Brien. Morning, you're in tune with what it is on WNCW for Public Radio. I'm Joe Kendrick, joined by Carol Millette Rifkin and Jeff Eason. Today, we're talking about Tim O'Brien, one of the stellar figures in the WNCW music universe. Uh, I've met Tim O'Brien, and he's a great guy and a really, really hardworking musician. But I, I honestly have to say, I, I don't get the allure sometimes. Um, I know, for example, at Merle Fest, which I go to every year, he gets a really plum main stage uh, assignment every single year. It's usually like at 6 p.m. on Saturday or Friday, one of those days. And every time there's almost predictably a mass exodus away from the main stage area as music lovers <laughs> go to other stages to find something a little bit more interesting. Um, he. He's just not dynamic in my book. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. That, all right. Them's fighting words. Okay. That's, <laughs> you're in trouble here. Uh, I love Tim O'Brien. I consider him to be one of the all-time great songwriters of our time. He's he's not um, jumping up and down on stage and screaming and yelling, but he's, he's just entrancing and a, a great singer and songwriter and just so versatile and talented. I just couldn't disagree with you more. There's, there's a whole... <laughs> Hallmark card side of his music that I think is sort of like Americana your grandmother would love. And and it just puts me to sleep every time I, I have to hear more than about three songs by Tim O'Brien. Sorry. Oh, you poor thing. He's written so many wonderful pieces. 
Um, sentiment, gosh, I, I just don't have a problem with sentiment. I just love it. And so much of, of great bluegrass and country music is sentiment. I mean, I still listen to Flatten Scruggs and Carter Stanley. Carter Stanley, I bet you'd say bad things about Carter Stanley. I would never say anything bad about Carter Stanley. Flatten Scruggs are part of my growing up heritage. And, but, and that goes to another aspect of Tim O'Brien that I just don't get. When you talk about some of these Americana musicians like Tony Rice and Sam Bush and Daryl Scott, these guys are great pickers. And I find him to be just an average musician all over the board. Oh, gosh, I think he's a great fiddle player. As a matter of fact, one of the things about Tim O'Brien is that he's one of the few musicians I know who competently can play both bluegrass and old-time music. He's one of the few who can cross back and forth, and bluegrass people accept him, and old-time musicians who are extremely, you know, critical that way, um, accept Tim O'Brien and all the work he's done with Dirk Powell and, and um, tons of other people. I think Tim's producing a lot of people now, too, Um well, darn, I think he's just a great uh, fiddle player. Well, I, you know, on your word, I will give him another listen. Tell me the one album that if you had to, if you'd never heard Tim O'Brien before, what would be the best starting place? I guess there's individual songs that I particularly like by Tim O'Brien, but um, they're going to be my taste. Um, if you wanted to hear him play fiddle, I'd go back and listen to his most recent release with uh, Dirk Powell um, on banjo, and I can't remember the exact name of it, but okay. there's uh, it's real easy to find. And then some of his songs, I mean, some of his songs date back really far. He wrote Walk the Way the Wind Blows, you know, that was like a huge country hit, you know, Cries the Tears I Cried, uh, whatever. Um, he wrote One Girl Cried, a lot of stuff that people don't even read. He did so long ago that people don't even realize it was a Tim O'Brien song, but... Uh, I'm kind of fond of old Tim. Well, ironically, the the one album of his that I really do care for is the album of covers that he did when he did a complete album of Dylan songs called Red on Blonde, which I find to be really? rather good. That was my least favorite Tim <laughs> Well, Carol, you're wrong. <laughs> Jeff, Carol, you ignorant sluts. <laughs> Joe, did you get Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin in here and, to replace Carol and Jeff? I tell you now, Tim O'Brien, he is, you know, always a favorite. Uh, Tim O'Brien is somebody that you can give uh, Tim O'Brien music to somebody who might not be that passionate about music, and I think that he would be readily enjoyed. Does Tim O'Brien have an edge? Well, um, it, it depends on what you're looking for. Does everybody have to have a hard edge, or is it just the edge that it's quality and it affects you and reaches you? Um, I mean, not everybody has to, to bark and bite, you know, I think. But. I think he's good. It just amazes me how well uh, regarded he is in the Americana and folk uh, worlds and that he seems to pop up at every one of these festivals that I go to. And he's a headliner, even though there are some other acts that I think are, are bigger attractions at those particular festivals. Uh, he seems to be writing a, a certain amount of reputation. Oh, gosh, I think he's so low-key. Um, he actually is extremely funny and um, cynical. If you sit and listen to one of those concerts where you think everyone's getting up and leaving, you might be just amazed at um, how low-key he is. You kind of have to pay attention. To I don't think I would be amazed at yeah. how low-key he is. <laughs> I mean, but his humor is, is just real subtle, and he's a very funny guy. This sounds like a Venus and Mars kind of thing going on here. There we go, yeah. Yeah, Tim is from Venus or Mars. I can't figure out which one. I don't know. Tim O'Brien, we're taking sides today on What It Is for Public Radio. I'm Joe Kendrick, joined by Carol at Rifkin, Jeff Eason, and Fred Mills. Thank Until you. next time.
Hey, Mark. Yeah, Tim? I got something I gotta say. Oh, well, tell me all about it. Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine And I'm on the pavement thinking about the government The man in the trench coat badge out laid off Says he got a bad cop and wants to get it paid off Look out, kid, it's something you did God knows when, but you're doing it again You better duck down the alleyway and looking for a new friend A man in the coon skid cap and the pig pen He wants $11 bills and you only got 10 That episode is Carol Rifkin's favorite what it is And is certainly one of mine as well in sorting out the fan-slash-hate mail afterward, Jeff wrote this to us. I think maybe my original point has been lost a bit. I don't demand that all artists break down walls all the time. I was simply suggesting that within the Americana world, Merlefest, WNCW, etc., that O'Brien's stature maybe outreaches his ability to excite audiences. Tish Hinojosa is another example of an Americana artist that people say that they enjoy more often than I think they actually do. I understand that O'Brien represents a certain low-key approach to traditional music, but when compared to similar artists such as Doc Watson and Tony Rice, I find him to be a bit safe and boring. That was my original thought for the segment anyway. Carol's arguments were thoughtful enough to make me rethink my position and give O'Brien some further listening. That's why I think the segment was successful. Jeff. We miss you very much, Jeff. Thanks for listening to Southern Songs and Stories. And thanks to Fred Mills and Carol Rifkin for being on What It Is All Those Times in its four and a half years on the air. There were many great panelists like Kim Rule, Bob Hinkle, Aaron Scholes, Wendy Liu, Justin Farrar, Barbie Angel, Daniel Coston, John Schacht, Perry Drawer, fellow WNCW hosts, and occasional music artists, too, among others. There were a lot of wonderful conversations shared between us and I have all of the original material still tucked away in case you really want to hear more than what you can access on southernsongsandstories.com. Just drop me a line. I encourage you to spread the word about this podcast and help out by subscribing and commenting on our show. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com, and you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, at South Scenes, and on Instagram, at South Stories. Plus, our podcasts are available on practically every platform there is. Coming up, we get to hear from the wagon master, Jim Lauderdale. I was lucky to get Jim to sit with me for a nice long conversation recently, and that will be the foundation for a podcast episode on him. I'm also working on a new wrinkle in the Southern Songs and Stories series with a video collaboration. Keep your fingers crossed for me there. Until next time, take Aretha's lead and keep doing that funky dance all night. Yeah.